Well, that song just stole my whole sermon, but I'm going to preach it anyway. Um, well, good morning. Good to be with you. Um, again, my name is Tim Pitzer. I'm the Youth and Family Life Pastor here. And uh, when you're asked to preach a few days before Sunday, you get to pick whatever text you want. So we are taking a little break from the Ten Commandments. Um, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Acts 26. Acts 26, we're going to be in verses uh, 12 through 18 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord to you this morning. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of the Lord is forever. Let's pray. God, there's much to consider from your word this morning. We're reminded, God, that you stopped at nothing to pursue enemies. God, we're reminded that you come for us through Christ through this text, God, I pray that as we look at this text in a few moments, that you would open our eyes to see the beauty of the gospel, that you'd open our eyes to see you as the true king, as the one who went before us to a cross. God, would you do all that we ask, for we ask it in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, yesterday, um, after kind of a, a crazy day, we, uh, we went to downtown Greenville, and it's one of my favorite places to, to go, and one of the things I've always kind of been fascinated with, uh, with these towns that kind of, you know, went from uh, just kind of not being that great to just a big overhaul. I'm from Rhode Island. I don't share that with many people, but I just share it with you. Um, and kind of Providence did the same thing. Providence, like 20 years ago, uh, was kind of a not safe place, not really a lot going on, and there's just been a lot of, uh, a lot of changes. And I always thought it'd be kind of cool to be in one of the early conversations with, with city planners or, or people on, on kind of what the plan is and kind of what, uh, what it looks like and, and what they're dreaming of with this. And I thought of this text, and I thought, that, that's why I love this text, is because we actually have a glimpse into the process, and yet it's so much greater than the planning of Greenville. In this text, we have a glimpse of, of Jesus telling Paul, hey, here's, what, here's, here's what's going to happen. Here's the dream. Here's what I'm going to make sure is, is actually going to come to fruition. And we have this in our text. If you're familiar with Acts, um, in, in the conversion story, there's about three times where Paul shares his, his massive conversion. And so this is the, the last time. Uh, he's giving it to Agrippa the king, who is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Um, and, and Paul was on trial giving a defense for his faith. And what's fascinating is, is Paul is actually sort of excited to talk to Agrippa in this text. 
He's excited because he knows that Agrippa knows the Jewish law. He knows the customs. He's, he's been around all these things. And Paul, in his newness of life, is actually looking forward to, to sharing, to talking with uh, these things with Agrippa. He says, I consider, or a little earlier, he says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today. You see, Paul has encountered something so amazing, so convincing that he feels confident enough to go to the Jewish leadership and say, hey, you've missed something entirely. The promise and the fulfillments of our faith has been right in front of us the whole time. And what did Paul encounter? Paul encountered better news than he had ever heard before. He encountered the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul realized that although as a Jew he had been around all these signs and all these things pointing that, that he missed it all along. He was right there in the middle of it. Around the signs, he had the scriptures, and, and he missed that he could never earn the righteousness of God on his own. He understood that gap and thought he could earn the righteousness of Christ on his own through good works. And for all of us who have put our trust in Christ, it's the same news we believe as well. And what I love about this text is through Paul telling of his conversion— and what Jesus told them, we get to see our own reality as, as explained from Jesus to Paul. We see how the gospel changes things. And so if you're a, if you're a note taker, I have three points. I guess I think maybe the, the, the less you've been a pastor, the less points you should have. So I don't have 15 points this morning. I have three. I'm going to stick with that. But we're going to look at going from death to life, about where we came from. That's the first point. We're going to look at where we came from. Then we're going to look at where we are headed to, where we've been saved to, and then lastly, kind of why does it matter? Why does it matter? So uh, where we came from, where we've been brought to, and then why does it matter? And so what you're saved from. So first, we're going to look at Paul. You're familiar with Paul, but uh, just in case you need a little refresher, Paul was a Roman citizen. He was called a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was also a persecutor of Christians. Paul approved and watched the stony of Stephen in Acts 8, and later Christians in prison. Uh, Acts 22, 3-5 says, I am a Jew, this is Paul speaking, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up to this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And then even our text, right, that starts off Paul saying, I came with the authority and the commission of the chief priests, uh, of the Jewish leaders, reminding us he was going out to arrest and persecute Christians. Okay, translation. If you were like a student back then and you wanted to go on a mission trip, you would not have sent Paul a mission trip support letter, right? This was not a person that was in favor of the faith. This was not someone who, uh, who trusted in Christ. This was an a, uh, enemy of Christians. And so then, you know the story, at midday it says, A light from heaven shines, and Paul falls to the ground, and a voice speaks and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who are you, Lord? And I want to pause on this question. 
Because look at what this question leads to in our text. In Paul's recount of his conversion, this is the question that brought forward the truth of who Jesus actually was. And it's the most important question that all of us could ever ask. Who are you, Lord? The fact is, Jesus is too big of a figure. He's too important, whether you're a Christian now or non-Christian or whatever. He's too important of a figure for you not to ask that question. i got to deal with Jesus. I have to have a stance on who this person was in history. And so Paul came and he said, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus' answer is actually kind of fascinating. It's easy to miss, but he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And you can imagine Paul might have said, whoa, 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 I haven't persecuted you, Jesus, right? Sure, I've killed Christians and, and, and persecuted them, but nothing against you. I haven't done this to you. And Jesus says, this is fascinating. My church is so connected with me that when you persecute them, it's as if you're persecuting me. And so he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And as we know, this leads to the conversion of Paul. This leads to Paul understanding for the first time his sin, understanding what it actually takes to be brought back into the righteousness of God, to go from death to life. Paul goes on, as you know, I don't need to even recount it, but to be a missionary, to to plant churches, to, to write much of the New Testament. And why did he do this? Because he had an experience of going from death to life, of going from something to something. And as we think about what we're saved from this morning, I want to kind of give a, f- a few disclaimers. Some of you have never known a day without the Lord, and that's awesome. Some of you have been praying for your children to never know a day without the Lord. Some of you may have been praying for, for wayward children to come back to the faith that they grew up hearing. Wherever you are, if you trust in Christ, this is all of our reality. All of us can be described as being in this process of going from blindness to sight, as going from from darkness to light. All of these things, we find our story in this. And so I want to briefly look back at where we came from. When Jesus tells Paul the purpose of his appearing to them, he has a section where he says, this is what you're going to do. And it begins with verse 18. He says, to open their eyes, you're going to go so that they may turn to dark, to, from darkness to light. And so this turn has a couple of different realities. It has both kind of a status change throughout here, but also has a belief change. That both those of us who have been turned from darkness to light, both uh, by God, have, have had things that are just different about us because of what God has done. And now there are also different things that we believe, right? We're going to kind of both talk about both of those things. So first, a status change the first one, it says that we've been brought from the wrath of God. It says that they may receive forgiveness of sins. There's perhaps no verse more clear for this than John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And again, Paul doesn't actually say wrath of God, but, but Jesus, in telling Paul the process, says the Gentiles, when, when, when they're brought from death to life, they're going to receive forgiveness of sins. And understanding that we know that that means before they receive forgiveness of sins, the wrath of God is still on them. This is not a popular opinion, right? Talking about the wrath of God. But Jesus doesn't ignore the concept of God's wrath. 
He doesn't just say, well, I'm just going to not mention that part because that's not really pretty. He explains it, right? He goes on and says, they need forgiveness of sins. There's justice that needs to be served, so they're going to receive this forgiveness. God's wrath is part of the gospel message, as we'll see in a little bit. And next he says, from the power of Satan. 1 John 3.10 says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John had just said, anyone born of God does not make a practice of sinning. Explain that there are two kinds of people. There's children of God and there are children of the devil. The hard reality is that we aren't born neutral. Like so often, I think if we're honest, we kind of think we were, right? That, well, I, I just was kind of born and it was up to me to choose. The, the scriptures actually explain, no, 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 no. You, were born, you were born in a category. This one's really not popular. You were born a child of the devil, deserving of God's wrath because of sin. I can't remember which one, but as I thought about kind of where our culture lands with this one, um, in uh, the movie The Avengers, again, I can't remember which movie, but there's this opening scene where Loki uh, has a scepter, and he, uh, he goes towards a couple of the good guys, I think, um, Hawkeye, and then there's like a professor, and, and he takes his scepter, and he goes towards them, and he uh, touches his like scepter to their hearts, right? He is it to both of them, and they go from like all you ever known these characters to be, these great, heroic, wonderful guys, to like evil, and, and like their eyes turn to red, and they just, and, and it's clear that they are under a different allegiance. I think if we're honest, sometimes we actually think that that's what it's like, right? But actually, it's the reverse. It's that we were actually born that way, that we were actually born in sin, that we were not born attuned to the things of God. And so as we look at this, we actually have to take a deeper look at the power of Satan. It says that he's the father of lies, John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Next, it says that he prowls around like a lion, seeking to destroy. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I promise we're not going to stay here all morning, okay? You're like, man, this, this kid just wants to go dark and stay there. But as I read about this, right, as I read about where we came from, that we were under the wrath of God, that we were under the power of, of Satan, kind of where it lands with me is it suddenly makes me realize the danger that I was in, where my actual reality was. I think I became a Christian around seven or eight, and, and I'm one of those where I, I feel like I never knew a day without without the Lord. And so when I read this, and I read that I was actually in that status at one point, that I was in darkness, it kind of reminds me of this. Sometimes there's movies where uh, one of the most terrifying things I have is I'm always scared of sharks, right? I can be in a pool, and I sometimes get nervous for sharks. I know it doesn't make sense, but that's where, they least, that's where you least expect it, okay? So sometimes there's that scene where you're, you know, uh, the swimmer's like in the ocean, and they're swimming to a boat, and, and they're starting to kind of crawl up the stairs, and, and their foot leaves the water, and there's this like, great white shark bite, like right after where their foot just left. And they're just on the boat, and they didn't even realize it, right? That's kind of what I think about. 
That when we read about the power of Satan, the wrath of God, the darkness that we came, it's not pretty. And it should cause us to say, oh, thanks be to God that that is no longer my reality. I didn't even truly realize the darkness that I was in. This is where, this is where I love that I pray for my kids as covenant children that, that they would never know a day without the Lord. And that, yes, they have to understand their sin and, and see it, but that they would read back and think, man, because I was around the things of God, I, wow, I didn't realize it was actually like this. And that's actually the power of Satan, that this is his mission statement. If you didn't know that, Satan has a mission statement for your life. It is to seek, to kill, and destroy. And the hard part is that he doesn't always look like Satan. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Paul says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. One of the things I didn't love living at the beach is that sometimes you can't tell the difference between a dolphin fin and a shark fin. I'm serious. I mean, there's probably, a, like, if you're a bio person, you probably could, but I couldn't always tell the difference. And one of the dangers of the world that we're in is that Satan doesn't always say, hey, it's me. Don't jump in, right, unless you want to get eaten. But there's an obvious two kingdoms, and sometimes we can't always tell. And so it should cause us to say, thanks be to God that this is where I came from, but this is no longer where I am. And then one more before we move on, that we've gone from darkness and blindness. This is another turn where Jesus says, I'm going to make this turn, that not only are they going to go from, uh, from the wrath of God to forgiveness, but they're going to go from darkness to light. Paul says in verse 18, I'm sending you, or Jesus says, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. 2 Corinthians 4, in their case, the God of this world was blinding, blinded, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. One more, Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. As we think about this from darkness to light, it goes along from blindness to sight, right? That we were spiritually blind to the things of God. But this is not only true for us, but was true for Paul. And this was someone who, remember, was around the things of God his whole life. He had been around the law, been around conversations about God, and yet his condition was darkness and blindness. So as we think about this, it's probably a question everyone, when they're learning about Paul, asks, but they think, what did Paul miss? Like, like how could he have read all, how could he have known all the things that we know about the Old Testament, and yet he, he missed a huge, he missed all of it, right? How could he be around it so much, and yet what did he miss? There are many things, but perhaps it's most summed up in this. I love, I was reading right before this verse in, in verse 6. He says, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promises made by God to our forefathers. Now I stand here on trial because of my hope. Paul missed where to put his hope in. And Paul is saying, I'm standing on trial. He's talking to, to Jewish leaders saying, I'm standing here, and it was always right in front of us that the promises of God to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob in Genesis 3, where there's this, this Messiah prediction of, of crushing the head of Satan. Paul says, I missed that. And he's actually excited to go to this Jewish leader because he's, he's saying, you, you, you have all this background. I'm excited to share what I missed, and it's always been right in front of us that he missed that he can never earn his way to God. 
that this, this great, vast space between God's righteousness and sinful man, that is a whole lot bigger than what Paul actually realized. And his works do a whole lot less than what he actually thought they do. And, and I, I can't speak for all of you. I can only speak for my own life. But man, that's something that I need reminding of. When I'm tempted, when I'm, when I'm feeling guilty or condemned by God sometimes, and I'm wondering, am I really a child of God? Sometimes my first reaction is, well, maybe my works. Well, maybe the fact that I've, that I've not missed my Bible reading six days in a row. And Paul, Paul would have come and said, no, 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 it's the promises of God. It's the promises of God to crush the head of Satan. And so what about you? Can you say that this is your past? Or maybe if you're honest, you're saying, I'm still there when I search my heart. I've seen this dark reality. Maybe you haven't really asked the question fully and honestly, who are you, Lord? Well, the good news is that through this process, God is not trying to trick you. God is not trying to make it some equation that you can't understand. Look at the the last four uh, words of this text that they may receive forgiveness and a place among those who are sanctified by what? By faith in me. And that leads us, that leads Paul, that leads us to look at what are we saved to through faith in Christ. There's this, this, this kind of weird part, and I'm warning, I'm about to get really excited about a strange verse in here, okay? So there's the, the, you probably didn't miss it, this part that said, Jesus says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And if you're like me, I did not know what a goad was. Um, I thought it was some kind of animal. It was very wrong. So a goad is actually like a sharp stick that back then they would use to kind of to, to prick the oxen, to kind of get them, the cattle, to, to get them in line, right? And so Jesus is saying, uh, hey, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against this thing, and it's easy to miss, but this actually kind of has the idea of something called irresistible grace, The idea that when God wants to get a hold of your heart, that when Jesus wants to save you, that he is actually going to guarantee that you are going to come to Christ, not because of your will, but because of him changing your will. And I'm always kind of surprised because sometimes that sounds offensive to us. And I think if if we think about it, here's why. I think I've shared this illustration before, but sorry, again, four days to sermon prep. And I think it leads really well into, into point two. Sometimes we think that here's what this looks like. Like we were in a toy store, right? And we're, we're kind of enjoying the toys. We're looking around. We're like, man, this is fun. And then in comes Jesus. He's like, come on, you're going to go to church. I'm going to make you a Christian, right? You're going to come from darkness to life. Come on, right? That's what we think when we think about Jesus forcing our wills. But here's what it actually is like. It's like you're in a graveyard, you're, you're buried alive. You're six feet under the ground in a casket, and Christ opens it up, and he gives you a new heart, and he says, look around. You're in darkness. You're under the wrath of God. Do you want to get out of here? And I don't know about you, but there's nothing offensive in me that says, thank God he guaranteed that I would come to him because of that. And, and in our text, this is what Paul has been brought from, and this is what we, don't miss this, this is a miracle. That from point one to point two, we have gone from one kingdom of darkness, from the power of Satan to the power of God. That we have gone from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. That we have received forgiveness of sins. This is what we have been, been brought from. And Jesus is saying it's a, it's a guarantee. 
And now in newness of life, one of the first things we believe in as Christians is we believe in the resurrection of the dead. Look at what Paul said earlier to Agrippa in verse 8. Why is it thought incredible by any of you, meaning the Jewish people, that God raises the dead? Paul is saying, I've seen enough, even before conversion, they believed in the power of God, right? So Paul is saying, how come you, the Jewish people who should know who God is, know from the Old Testament, how, how is it that you can't believe that God can raise from the dead? And if Christ was raised from the dead, what does that mean for the status change for believers in light of the cross? Well, here's where it turns good. Here's where the good news comes, that we have been brought from the wrath of God to the righteousness of Christ. Here, Isaiah 53, you've all heard it before, 4 through 6, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned and everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It means that we have gone from the wrath of God because of our sin to Christ receiving the wrath of God in his resurrection and ascension. That we now have the righteousness of Christ brought because of the cross. You see, our going from darkness to light wasn't because God chose to ignore wrath. I think sometimes we think that, right? That there's still wrath or, or like God must have just forgotten about the wrath. No, the wrath is still very real. It just became on Christ instead of us. You know the verse that on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ. I live. But then not only have we gone from, from the wrath of God to the righteousness of Christ. We've gone from the darkness to the kingdom of God. We've gone, we've had a kingdom exchange. You've gone from kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. One commentator on this said, the bondage of Satan's power can be exchanged for the gracious sovereignty of God who is greater. The bondage of Satan's power in the life of a believer can be exchanged for the gracious sovereignty of God who is greater. When I was in middle school and we would play football in gym or, or after school, we would all pick teams, and there's only one thing that we would all look for. We would look to be on Jamie's team, right? So Jamie, we didn't fully know it at the time, but Jamie seemed to be really good at football. And it seemed like no matter which team we were selected, no matter how many players were on that or if there's other people, like whatever team Jamie was on would win. And Jamie went on to be one of the top safeties for Boston College, and then went on to play four years for the Indianapolis Colts. So we didn't quite realize who he had it at the time, but it completely mattered. I'm telling you, I'm not just exaggerating. Every single game, it did not matter what team Jamie's team won, and that's kind of what this is right here. That God is saying, there's only one that matters, and it's the one who took the penalty of sin on your behalf. And so now here, third point, why it matters. Why it matters for, we're going to look at real quick, why it matters for us and then why it matters for, for non-believers. So why it matters for believers. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. This is one of my favorite verses to kind of walk through sometimes, especially those of us who grew up. I don't know about you, but like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 was like the first passage that I memorized after John three sixteen. But I'm always shocked that 
that we don't talk about Ephesians 2.10 a lot. So you've heard the verse says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? Everything that we've been talking about, from death to life, that, that we receive uh, the, the righteousness of Christ, that it's a gift, that salvation's not by works. But then out of that, because of that, Ephesians 2.10 can actually come in to the scene. Ephesians 2.10, in light of that, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's important not to miss that we never move beyond this from darkness to light. Like, it's never like we say, well, I'm at the point where I've gone from darkness to life, and now I'm in the final step, right? No, it's in, it's in this, new, this new status, this new reality, that now you walk in what is actually your purpose from Ephesians 2.10, that you would walk in good works created beforehand in Christ Jesus. And so as we think about this, this is the gospel that that fuels us, that we never move beyond, that we go from darkness to light. This is what Paul was saying that he was missing when he was talking to Agrippa. He was saying, I had this promise all along, and yet I missed it. And then lastly, here's why it matters for non-believers. Because if you have placed your faith in anything other than him alone for salvation, you're still in the first point of the sermon. You're still in darkness. You're still under the wrath of God. There's still an atonement needed for sins. So this is you this morning. You can ask, who are you, Lord? Who is this Jesus that enters the scene? Is he someone that I need? Have I, have I looked at this whole Christianity thing, and it's, it's maybe just a Sunday morning experiment for me? Or it's, it's something I grew up in, and, and I just keep going to church because you know, my parents made me when I was a teenager, and I'm sure there's some great people, and, and it's kind of fun. And it, no. Force yourself to bow down and say, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Are you really the one that all the scriptures have pointed to? Are you the one that, that when I search my deepest and my darkest longings and need, that I can come and I can see, I can see now that I have, that my biggest problem is that I am not the righteousness of God, is that I am not worthy, is that I have a sin problem and in comes Christ and says, okay, I'm ready to turn you. I'm ready to turn you from darkness to light. I'm ready to turn you from receiving the wrath of God to the righteousness of Christ. In conclusion, um, so yesterday we went hiking. We went hiking with uh, the Wisdoms, and we thought it'd be really smart or fun to take eight kids under the age of seven hiking, right? And we took them to this place called, uh, I think, Little Bradley Falls, so should have been tipped off by the name uh, of this, but so we're hiking, and um, I don't think I'm ever going to uh, be allowed to be the planner of the hikes again, because I was reading online. It said, like, family-friendly, and, you know, people are like, oh, it's a little, you know, a little iffy, but just make sure to follow this path, and don't do that, and so I was reading beforehand. I thought, okay, okay, I got this, and, and we show up, and um, one, of the, one of the guys that looked like he knew what he was talking about as he was leaving um, said, hey, you're going to want to go that way and not that way. And the way he pointed to that way was up, not like along the nice parts of, of the stream. So we started hiking, and we went up, and um, 
the, the path on several points basically was like this wide, sometimes like seemed like this wide, and off and on there was like a 250, maybe 200 foot drop, right? There's some trees there, but like uh, nothing like Google had described. And I thought, this is, this is, and the problem is we had already like, you know, when you're kind of at the point of no return, you're like, man, we just, we just walked through there. Like, that way wasn't good either, right? And then we got to this one point and some people were turning around. They said, oh, there's a sign that said the falls are closed. And then we realized, man, I think that guy that knew what he was talking about said to take this right turn by that creek. So then we had to go back the way we came and, you know, walk to, eventually got to the falls. There's this beautiful waterfall and it was great and fun. And then we're walking back. And we caught up to this, this family that had, uh, I think, like a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. And they're in front of us, and they're like, do you want to pass us? We said, no, no, trust you won't. We're not fast. So uh, I'm just kind of talking to them. And then I heard this, like, this slip. And I look in front of me, and I see their, their three-year-old boy. It's on one of those parts where the, it's about this wide of a path. It's about a 200-foot drop. And their three-year-old boy had slipped and he's just in full Superman, hanging off like the edge there. And I look, and the dad is like this, and he's got his feet, the only thing he could grab. And for a second, my heart stopped, and it didn't click until a few moments later. I thought, man, like, I almost witnessed something that, like, you don't even like to read about in the news, right? And then I thought about my typical, this is my favorite illustration I share with students all the time, like, how, that how it's, it's God's grip that's holding us and, and not us to God. And I thought, about, okay, what was really at play, though, here? And one of the reasons why the boy fell, it seems obvious, but if you think about it, it's gravity, right? It's the power of gravity. Gravity was not in the boy's favor at that time. And there's a one point where I'm, I'm walking, and all of us adults, the wisdoms in us, we knew the power of gravity. And so we were, we were holding the kids. There were several parts where we said, okay, hands on this part. And we all, like, every, every kid had to have a hand. And there's one point where I was holding uh, Ellie's hands and an Iris's, and Iris looks up to me and says, like, it's, it's one of the, like, a narrow part of the carriage. She just says, uh, Dad, don't let go. And I thought, like, you're crazy if you think I'm going to let go. Like, that's cute. Yeah, don't let go. But there is not a, a force in this earth that is going to cause me to let go. And, and that's what I've shared a lot of times. Like, that's what our salvation is. But as I thought about this context, this verse, Christ actually went one step further. Christ actually looked down the cliff and he said, there's only one way that this is going to work. And he looked at God and said, God, is there any other way? And he said, not my will, but yours. And he jumped for us. He looked down and he said, I'm going to fully satisfy the wrath of God. I'm going to go where I don't want you to go. So that now on this path that as you walk, yes, there's still going to be some scary things, but I have gone before you. I have done what is necessary so that you can now walk in newness of life. That's the God that we serve. That's the reason why we come. That's the reason why we sing these songs. That's the reason why we worship him, because Christ went before us, and we never leave this. We never move beyond this, that Christ went and he took the penalty, that as we look and we stared death, Christ said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make sure that you are safe. So as as we leave this morning, I want you to think about this. There's only two options. You are either under the wrath of God or you are in the category of the righteousness of Christ. That you are either in darkness or you're in light. There's no in between. 
My prayer for all of us is that we would see the Savior that has made a way for us to stay, to be in the kingdom of light. Let's pray. God, we know that when we look at your word, when we gather as believers, this is, this is encouraging, but God, then we go out there. Then we go out into the world that, that forces all of these other things to trust in, that tries to present other ways to live. God, I pray that we would be reminded each and every day that this is the battle that we're fighting, but that ultimately that you fought it for us that we've been transferred from darkness to light, that we've been transferred into the kingdom of your son, that you now call us a child because of what Christ did. God, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that now as we look at, as we think about walking in good works, we know that we do them as ones who are already called children of God, no longer condemned because of our sin, but brought back into your fellowship of your son. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.